0: KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design & Remodeling. Helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design & Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at TrustYourHomeToUs.com. You're listening to Port of Entry, where we tell cross-border stories that connect us. For this episode, we're doing something a little different. We're airing a conversation we had in front of a live YouTube audience a while back with none other than Jorge Gutierrez. Jorge grew up crossing the border between Tijuana and San Diego, and he's an impressive, impressive human. He lives in L.A. now and has worked his way into being one of the most acclaimed border artists working today. He's the director of the gorgeously animated movie The Book of Life. He and his wife, Sandra Ekiwa, are the creators of the hit Nickelodeon show El Tigre, And he's got some new, exciting projects coming out on Netflix very soon. One of those projects, Maya and the Three, will be out in October.
1: I don't want to be cooped up because I'm a princess. I could be a great eagle warrior. This is no place for a girl!
0: We'll get to our live and very lively conversation with Jorge Gutierrez after a quick break. No se vaya.
1: Hello, podcast listener. Full disclosure, I'm going to make some assumptions about you. This probably isn't the only podcast you enjoy. Blink if I'm right. It's probably not the only thing you watch or listen to on KPBS either. If I'm right about that, then I'm guessing you make it a point to check in on a regular basis, to see what's new, take in the latest and greatest, and then you go back to your daily life until we happily come together again. We're sort of like a virtual buffet. When you're hungry for information and entertainment, you go to KPBS and want to eat, uh, consume all you can, right? Well, you should know that when you become a member of KPBS, You're keeping the entire TV, radio, and online trays full of fresh ideas, like the tasty podcast you're enjoying right now. Help feed your appetite for KPBS. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. Thank you.
0: Gracias por quedarte con nosotros. So I'm super excited to see a full episode of Jorge's Maya and the Three series on Netflix. It's a fantasy tale about a warrior princess that pulls inspiration from a lot of Mesoamerican mythology and imagery. The animation is uniquely beautiful and very soulful, and the cast reads like a menu of some of my favorite Latin actors, Zoe Saldana, Diego Luna, Gael Garcia Bernal, Dani Trejo, just to name a few. Okay, so let's get to it. Can you tell us a little bit more about how this came about and the quick summary of the this epic quest you're taking this princess on?
2: Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm originally from Mexico City and I moved to Tijuana when I was a little kid. And one of the things that happens to, to, I think, to a lot of Mexicans is that the further you get away from the center, the more you romanticize it. Seeing a lot of the imagery, of the handsome Aztec man holding the beautiful lady uh, with, with the Popo volcano behind them, all those images that I saw in cobijas and in the <laughs> side fans and you know in tattoos and everywhere, I've always kept going like, wow, the women are are, are just the object of desire and they're the the prize or the they're never the warrior. Why are the warrior women? And a lot of this stuff is mythology. Why are there no more women? And so I looked into a lot of the, the myths, especially the Aztec warrior is such a huge part of, of Mexico. It's in the money, it's in the soccer teams, it's everywhere. So I said, I think, I think we should hack mythology. Hmm. And I'm gonna create this warrior princess. And it's gonna be a metaphor for today. And it's gonna be a metaphor for the history of, of the women of Mexico who don't get credit for being warriors. Uh hmm. and it's just being married to a Mexican man, you're already a warrior. You already <laughs> already deserve a medal. So all the, all the women in my life, my, my grandma, my mom, my wife, my sister, I mean, the, the lives they've lived, these are warrior women. So I wanted to honor them with the show.
0: Oh, that's beautiful, man. I think that's incredible because, like we were talking about a little bit before, uh, storytelling is so much more than entertainment. You know, I think if we want a lot of these societal issues to, to shift to a more harmonious place, the storytellers have a huge responsibility. The stories we tell Shaped our future. So I'm super stoked to see that. Uh, I hear it's going to have a, a soundtrack that
2: includes a lot of metal music. Oh, hell yeah. Uh, so wow. Our- it's uh, Gustavo Santolaya. And he's working with another composer named Tim Davies from Australia. And, you know, Gustavo Santolaya was very much a part of the 90s sort of rock and Espanol era of music that I I was in high school when all those things happened. I I joke with him that I lost my virginity to his soundtrack. uh, (laughs) When I I would tell him that, he he would like just shake his head. But all that influence, Caifanes, Malita Vecindad, you know, Cafeta Cuba, obviously. And so there's metal, because to me, you know, there's a lot of metal bands and, especially in South America that were huge. So all that made it into the show and all those ideas that culture is fluid and culture evolves. To a kid today, the music from the 90s is ancient. So that's ancient music now. So that, that was a big part of that.
0: Mm. Yeah, it sounds like, I mean, in a, in a lot of your work, I can see this, but it sounds like in my end the of three, there's gonna be a lot of kind of mishmash of Mexican American pop culture, indigenous folklore, all kind of m- meshed into this story.
2: Yeah, I mean, that, that was another big thing that I, you know, in Book of Life, some people were a little shocked to see our main character sing a Radiohead song in the middle of a bullfight in 1910 Mexico. And I said, if I, if I used an authentic song of that time, no one would know it. But by taking things that I lived through and remixing them and re- basically appropriating the soul of what those uh, songs meant, into the context of the movie, then you 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 get to introduce into a whole new generation and you get to introduce the duality of, honestly, the border, right? Because mm. I heard Creep sang by Mariachis and I said, look how great that song is that it it went somewhere else. And I remember at the time, I didn't know any better, so I put it in the script and Guillermo del Toro, who, who's the producer, said, you're, you're not gonna get the song. Mm-hmm. They denied the song to you know, Alfonso Cuaron. They denied me the song. There's no way in hell you're gonna get the song. So I, I wrote, I wrote the band, and we sent them a video of the moment in the movie, and I explained how that song was basically my my war cry as a teenager when I didn't think I belonged, and how much it meant to me, and how as a kid in Tijuana, that was literally my my little flag that I raised. And, and Tom York said, "Yeah, you can use it," based on the. Wow. So I am eternally thankful to Radiohead. And after that, every band we asked who was on the fence about letting us use their songs, uh, we would say, Oh, so so you think you're better than Radiohead? Is that what you <laughs> <laughs> Tom York said yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible.
0: Yeah, it seems like just having grown up at the border and crossing the border, I'm sure, on the way to school and on and, and all that, it seems like a lot of that, the bright and wild, colorful visuals. That you see at the border are very influential in your work, and I know in this book of yours that I have right here, Border Bang, you shout out the border and like all the border vendors who we've spent a lot of time talking to and their creativity and entrepreneurial spirit, how how they like they seize on pop culture and taking on the zeitgeist, you know, and any characters, movie stars, rock stars and kind of make, make them their own and are able to make a living off of them and support, support their families. It seems like this mishmash kind of like culture is fluid, like you said, has very much influenced your work. Can you tell me about like how, how crossing the border, if that's accurate?
2: Absolutely, uh, you know, as a kid, as a nine-year-old crossing that border, you know, two hours every day to go to school, you're a sponge. And I would absorb everything that the vendors had. So seeing Tupac, Next to SpongeBob, next to you know Bob Marley, next to Scarface, next to Chavo del Ocho. A lot of times, I didn't know who, who the people were, and I, I would sort of decipher like, why is Mickey Mouse next to the Virgin Mary? Like all those images got tattooed on my on my eyes, and then the borders alive, right? So I remember when you know, when Kurt Cobain passed away, immediately all this Kirk Cobain stuff started popping up. It's almost like the border honored him with the bootleg, the bootlegs mm. were uh, laying down for him. And I remember, you know, same thing with Selena uh, was murdered. All the Selena stuff started coming out. You would know who, what teams were doing well because all their stuff was selling. It was like the border was alive and who they chose to to honor and who, by the way, who they chose to vilify, right? So in Halloween, if you saw, uh, Salinas de Gortari costumes, basically the border were saying, "Yeah, the president of Mexico is the devil." Right? Like all mm. the, all these immediate reactions that, as a kid, really informed me, really informed the way I see characters and the way I see color. Mixing things is in our DNA. I think as border kids, having grown up with one foot on each side, you kind of get used to that back and forth every day, mm. and being able to. To go, look at what happens to American culture when it comes down here. But then look at what happens to American culture when it's recontextualized and represented to an American audience. And, you know, Bart Sanchez from The Simpsons and all these mm. start happening. I love all that stuff. Because to me, culture is evolution. And so mm. grabbing these things and making them your own, your own that's, that's Tijuana, right? That's, that's San Diego. That's a hybrid uh, state we get to live in yeah, it's such a fascinating thing, no matter how
0: many hours I've spent talking about the border, I never get tired of it because it it has this like paradoxical nature where the fact that there is a border makes the artists of this region kind of borderless. Like your our imaginations right. become very boundless, which is such a wild thing that this border creates,
2: yeah, it's like the, the vision allows us to grab from both mm. which is very rare. And you know, I always say. Tijuana is the last corner of Latin America. The whole continent, all the – it ends there. It's and, like a
0: funnel. It's like a, it's, everything's funneling through.
2: Really, right? And the U.S., probably one of the most influential cultures in the world, again, is right there, right? Los Angeles is, is two hours away where a lot of the music industry, film industry. So the fact that these two forces are constantly at each other, I think that's the, where the magic happens.
0: mm yeah, I completely agree. It's a fascinating place. Uh, before we continue, I want to go back a little bit. As I understand it, your dad was born in Tijuana, but he moved to Mexico City to study architecture and you were born there, but then he, for some reason, was called back to Tijuana. Do you remember what that move was like and why Why your dad decided to go back to Tijuana?
2: Yeah, you know, it was, uh, it was early 80s, uh, 84, and my dad, having grown up in Tijuana, you know, there was no universities in Tijuana at that time. So he studied architecture in Mexico City, started doing pretty well, met my mom, they got married, and then he said, Mexico City's crazy. There's too it's just too crazy. I, I wanna go home. I wanna I wanna basically convince my mother to return to Tijuana. I was nine years old, my my sister was 10. It was a huge move. I mean, for a kid at that age, especially Mexico City was was our home. So coming to Tijuana was really powerful uh, my dad wasn't doing well economically at that time so we we went from living in a house to living in an apartment it was a huge change we had gone to a, a school in Mexico City that was supposed to be bilingual but my parents didn't speak English so they didn't know any better that we weren't learning English and we didn't know they right? we were little kids so mm-hmm. uh, as soon as we come to uh, to Tijuana and this is you know mid 80s they just didn't like people from Mexico City Tijuana mm-hmm. was a little, uh, little close-minded back then. So we couldn't get accepted into any schools in Tijuana. So then what a lot of middle-class parents do, they get uh, student visas for their kids so they can go to study in San Diego. So we were sent to uh, Catholic schools. And again, the nuns would say, Jorgito, what is your name? And I would be like, oh, Jorge. And they'd go, like, where were you born? Jorge. <laughs> What's your favorite food? Jorge. <laughs> And sure enough, these kids don't know any English, <laughs> so they, they put us in a school in San Isidro in the middle, basically for kids who didn't know English very well and, and knew Spanish. And that's kind of where we learn English, but I learned English watching cartoons because I became obsessed with that stuff. And you know, if you told that kid, cause I got held back two years, that's how, that's how bad I was. If you told that kid that one day someone will pay you to write. Like, it's insane to me that that, that eventually happened. But mm. the experience was was pretty shocking. And then I always say, I didn't know I was Mexican until I crossed into the US. That was the first time someone explained it to me. Like, oh, you're not from here, you're from over there. You're not an American, you're a Mexican. Like, I, again, at nine years old, you're starting to realize, oh, this is this is different. And then for a kid like me, Basically, you got to experience two countries every day and you got to see your country go to another country to go to school and then come back. And so there are moments in the day where I felt like, well, I'm really lucky and I, 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 my parents are doing really well. Oh, no, my parents aren't doing very well <laughs> compared to this. So I got to be rich, poor and middle class every day three times mm. based on where I was. And that also, I think, affects you. Uh, and you value things differently and you value you value your country differently and I think you start especially for for as a teenager you start to go, all right, well this side is cleaner, but I can have more fun on this side hmm. and this side is better for this, but this side is better for that and you start creating your version of the border and you start creating your version of what's better for you because now you have options and I think for a lot of kids in other places they don't get to do that they don't get mm. to. Uh, the weekend, I'm going to go here, and then I'm going to go here, and and basically get the best of both worlds. And I think that also makes it very special.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think if you do have that that privilege to be able to cross, the fact that you do have options, like you said, it's like almost neural pathways. Like if you if you get caught in one way of viewing things your whole life, you don't know what's outside of that. I think the the reason this such an imaginative, ba- like all the artists from this region that I know are so imaginative and and borderless in their minds, is because you do get to see so many angles at, of the same thing. Do you remember what shows you were watching to learn English?
2: Uh, all the traditional GA Joe, Transformers. But honestly, yeah. I, everything, Gem and the holograms, I would just try to learn. And I was that kid who could barely speak and kids made fun of, but it just fueled me to learn even more. And then I remember, you know, another, another thing that was a big thing was there was a, a club, and yeah, this is more teenage years, but there was a club called Iguanas. And mm-hmm. that's where a lot of bands would go from the States. So as a 15-year-old kid in Tijuana, you could go see the Chili Peppers and you could go see, uh, you know, Fishbone. Like you could go see all these bands that would come to your little city in Mexico. And again, that was super unique.
0: Mm.
2: So all those influences, you turn on the radio and you're listening to stations in San Diego and you're listening to music from both sides. So all that is, I always say it's like, it's like heart proteins coming in from both sides.
0: Wow, yeah, I guess a lot, a lot of nourishment. I, ju- yeah, I just coincidentally met Harlan, who was the guy who was bringing all those bands to Iguanas, which was oh, really incredible. Yeah, please He's thank like an, for a change. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I told him like that. How many people I've talked? To. I'm, I'm too young to have gone to Iguanas, but, but every musician that I, every artist that's that I admire from the border region was somehow touched by Iguanas and their life was enriched by it. So, so I thanked him for everybody.
2: (laughs) Yeah. He, I mean, honestly, that there's a whole generation, uh, especially in the nineties where we got to, we got to live and experience both worlds exploding in a positive way. It was, it was a unique era, the Hmm. nineties.
0: How, how young were you when you started funneling your, this, all this creativity, the heart proteins into art? When did you start drawing or thinking of yourself as an animator?
2: Well, you know, all we always joke that every kid is an artist and some just stop doing it, mm-hmm. right? Because every kid draws pretty much. So we were, my wife and I were the kids who didn't stop. We just kept drawing and drawing and drawing and drawing. And then at some point, my family, especially when I was 13, they started going, All right, well, if you're really serious about this, we're going to pay for you to take classes. So in Tijuana, I would go to Casa La Cultura and Secut, and I would just take as many classes as I could, and some were very formal, and I, I wasn't a very formal artist, but I, I got a lot out of them. And I remember my dad, you know, especially Casa La Cultura, the only uh, uh, models that they could get were, of course, exotic dancers from from La Rebo. So he would look at my drawings, and he would go, "What are you drawing?" And I'm like, "Dad, this is what the this is what the models look like." So it, it was it was very unique. Again, wanting to be an artist in Tijuana, it was a, a pretty much a, a giant stretch. And I and I remember a lot of my friends in Tijuana who said, "I can do this as an aside, but there's no way I can study this. There's no way my parents will ever support me being an artist." And I had friends in San Diego who would always tell me, "You know, my parents worked so hard to come to the U.S. I can't." use up that dream to try to pursue something as unstable as the arts. Mm. And so I think for a lot of Latino youth, especially on, on both sides of the border, it just seems really risky. So parents are not really encouraging their kids. And and I remember at that time thinking, well, someone's gonna be doing this stuff. And if you're really passionate, you have to power through. But it was really tough. I mean, I, when I finally got into art school, I kind of got in as a fluke. I was 17 years old. I was painting all this Mexican stuff, luchadores, and they're the dead, and all these things. And I was painting all that stuff because I because I loved it, right? And I, and it was the stuff that I genuinely felt passionate about. But because I wanted to go in animation because I love cartoons, I started drawing all the things I thought the Americans wanted to see. And so I would draw Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse and you know, Bart Simpson. Literally all the things I saw. Well, this is what they want. And when I applied to Cal Arts uh, here in L.A. The guy who was reviewing my portfolio, he was Hungarian and I was 17. He looked at my drawings and he said, this is crap. This is terrible. And he just destroyed me drawing by drawing. He said, this is awful. This is awful. And he said, a copy machine could have made this. You have no voice. You're not an artist. You're just drawing what you saw. I was devastated. He closed my portfolio. And then I left my painting portfolio on the table. And he opened that, and his eyes exploded. And he he called me back. He he said, "You know, you son of a bitch. What is this?" Uh, And uh, and I said, "Oh, this is you know, these are my paintings." And he grilled me. He said, "Why did you paint this?" I said, "Well, because this is the stuff I love." And he started laughing. And he said, "You stupid boy. This is you. This is your voice. That's not your voice. The other stuff. The other stuff that you should burn. This is who you are." make this move and you'll be doing something I've never seen. Welcome to the school. And that was it. That wow. got into my life. And from that point, the moment that I had thought my culture was to some extent a weakness because I had never seen it in animation and I'd never seen it in cartoons. With those words, he flipped it and it became my strength.
0: Hmm. What an angel man. I know. I know. Right. <laughs> So the ambitions that you had before that and after that, would you say like clearly very different, like what you, how you saw your future as in, in the arts?
2: Yeah. I mean, at that time, I thought, I think I'm pretty good at drawing. I can work in animation and then I'll paint on the side for me because I had a lot of friends who would say, oh, I'm going to go into graphic design or engineering and then I'll play in my band or I'll, you know, do my art on the side. But it, but it was never the same. It was always separate. know a lot of it was their parents basically saying yeah yeah i know you love music but you got to go to you know be a doctor or be a dentist and then you can do your music on the side and i think that that's a big part of mexico where parents are just looking out for their kids and they don't Mm -hmm. want they don't want them to take that chance it's understandable i've I've had
0: that in my in my life where it's like okay so you love music maybe write jingles and then do your music on this you know it's and, and it makes sense. It's your parents just want you to not starve. You were saying how like that's very uh, prevalent in Mexican culture. Were your parents supportive when you decided to go to art school? And at what point did they stop worrying about you?
2: My dad uh, being an architect, you know, it, it is an art, but it's a very conservative and more serious art. Uh, he didn't know what to make of me. And he said, you have this rebel fire in you and I think you should pursue this. And if it doesn't work out, then you'll have no regrets. Mm. which is super rare for a Mexican dad <laughs> to say that. And so he he really supported me. My grandfather supported me. Of course, I can't say my mom supported me because I think all Mexican moms just support you, right? If I told my mom, like, mom, I want to be the Pope, she'd be like, great.
0: Estar
2: tan guapo como Pope. Yeah, she would like start making me laugh. <laughs> so I think I think that was a big moment, but the fact that the school accepted me and then I was really lucky. I got scholarships from both sides of the border. The, the school gave me scholarships. And then back then the FONCA, the, the Mexican Arts Council sponsored me. So I got to go and I did my, my bachelor's and my master's in, in animation. And the more Mexican stuff I did, the more stuff the more stuff came to me in a natural organic way. And I remember at that time, a lot of teachers saying, you keep doing this stuff and you're not gonna get work because there's nothing like this out there. And so they were right. As soon as I graduated and I would show my, my work to different studios, you know, I'd go to Disney or Cartoon Network or Nickelodeon, everybody would very politely go, this is great. Where's your, you know, other stuff? And I was like, what do you mean by other stuff? You know, you're, you're not the Mexican stuff, the other stuff. And I, I didn't have any of that other stuff. So I couldn't find work. And I remember a producer at Nickelodeon sat me down and he said, well, I'm not gonna hire you, i love your stuff and i'm going to give you some advice the only person who's going to hire you to do this mexican crazy looking stuff that you're doing is you Hmm. i was like what do you mean you have to be sitting where i'm sitting so you have to pitch your own movies and your own tv shows and then it can look like this because it's about this and that was it i went home and i was like i'm starting over and i just started pitching and pitching and pitching and you know, that was 20 years ago. I love so much hearing stories like yours cause it
0: really like shows you that if you really stick to your, like the truest version of your creativity, eventually it's gonna work out. Um, even I mean, if you go through the, the challenge, the very challenging years.
2: Yeah, I mean, those early years are, I think are tough for everybody. But for for me, it was, if you're a Mexican and you graduate college in the U.S., the U.S. government gives you one year called practical training. In that year, you're allowed to stay in the country. And if you don't find the job that sponsors you, you get deported. So as wow. you can imagine, my friends uh, would graduate and be like, ah, I don't know if I want to work at Pixar because it's San Francisco's too cold for me, Like stuff like that. <laughs> and, and for me, it was, holy crap, if I don't get a job, I'm going to get deported. And all the support I gotten from my family and from my country and literally my culture's on my back willing me to do these things if i fail and i go back to tijuana i'm going to be the you know the most talented taco stand guy i basically learned to do something that can't be done here mm. so it was it was monumental for me and it mm. was definitely especially at that time this is, i graduated in the year 2000 man the the energy in the world was you know the world is changing and all these things are happening the internet was just sort of starting to to happen and I got really lucky. I got to admit, there was a lot of moments where, because of the technology changing, they just hired people who knew new things. And I was graduating at the perfect time. And I got to do, you know, my first job out of school was making my own cartoons. So that's that ruined me, because I thought that was normal.
0: Yeah, you you became spoiled in a sense. It's like, I'm not gonna go be a nine to five animator anymore. Right, I said, you know, this is the greatest country on earth. They pay
2: you to make your own stuff.
0: (laughs) Wow. Alrighty, we got to take a quick break, but when we come back, the immense privilege and sense of responsibility, but also the mental trauma that comes with crossing the border to follow your dreams. No se vayan a ningún lado.
1: Hello, podcast listener. Full disclosure, I'm going to make some assumptions about you. This probably isn't the only podcast you enjoy. Blink if I'm right. (laughs) It's probably not the only thing you watch or listen to on KPBS either. If I'm right about that, then I'm guessing you make it a point to check in on a regular basis, to see what's new, take in the latest and greatest, and then you go back to your daily life until we happily come together again. We're sort of like a virtual buffet. When you're hungry for information and entertainment, you go to KPBS and want to eat. Uh, consume all you can, right? Well, you should know that when you become a member of KPBS, you're keeping the entire TV, radio, and online trays full of fresh ideas, like the tasty podcast you're enjoying right now. Help feed your appetite for KPBS. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. Thank you.
0: Ya estamos de vuelta. Let's dive right back into the live conversation I had with animator and movie director, Jorge Gutierrez. I want to touch on what you said because like this idea of kind of having the culture on your back and all the support from your parents, all the sacrifices that your grandparents have made to you to get there. You told my producer Kinsey, something that, that when you were holding your student visa and being able to cross into the US, you felt like you were kind of holding your life in your hands. Can you talk to me a little bit about that kind of responsibility and to your family, to your culture and privilege that you felt and how you processed it as an artist?
2: Yeah, and Matt, imagine being nine years old and being handed a little visa card and, with your passport and told, if you lose this, that's it. Hmm. You can't cross, you can't go to school, you can't go to the States, you've literally you've let us down you let your grandparents down you let your country down take care of this document at nine years old that immediately made me grow a mustache and like like it aged me instantly i think like i had white hair come out but literally crossing the border was such an event every day and, and and talking to the border border agents it was a very strong experience at nine years old, especially having grown up in Mexico City. I wasn't used to any of this. And so when they would talk to me and I didn't understand them and they could see my terrified face, I think it just it just made them, a lot of times they would laugh, but a lot of times they would wonder if there was something wrong with me. One of the most eventful moments as a nine year old was we were sent, ladies would take turns dropping off kids at school. So it was like a carpool. And I remember we got sent to secondary inspection. We're all holding our little visas, right? Nine year, nine years old to like 12 or 13 kids. They line us up. They were very, very nice. I will say they were extra nice because we were kids and they went by one, one by one and questioned us. And I remember, I will never forget this. The border patrol agent asking me, Hey, did you eat or swallow any balloons? And as a kid, oh. I understood the word balloon, but I wasn't sure like eating balloons. I was like, no no, no entiendo. And then the, the kid next to me kind of explained it to me, like, did you eat any balloons? And I was like, no, Why would why would anybody eat a balloon? And the guard was like, can I poke your belly? And so he made me raise my shirt and, you know, I was a chubby kid and he literally started poking my belly and I started giggling and then that was it, right? We got sent, we got in the car and this 13 year old who seemed to me like the most experienced, it was like a, he was like an ex con to me because he, he seemed to know so much, he explained like, there's people who put drugs in uh, balloons and then they tie them and then you eat them and then you cross a border and then you poop them out. I was nine when they were explaining this to me and I was like, what happens if the balloon breaks? And I remember him going, well, then you die. So, don't need any of those. And I was like, who's giving? Wow. You? Dang, so,
0: that 12-year-old knew a lot. I didn't know that stuff as a
2: 12-year-old. Yeah, I mean, right? Like, and then he took out a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: wow. That-, that sounds like a lot to handle as a 9-year-old. As a Do you think all these kind of heavier, stressful experiences with Border Patrol and, like, even facing the idea of death as a nine-year-old right like oh you eat the drug like all these experiences do you with with border patrol specifically do you think they shaped your politics or how you think about the world and your place in it as an adult
2: absolutely i mean you have to you have to remember especially back then as a kid you're already terrified so to hear these stories they leave a huge impact and you know a lot of the border patrol people they're doing their jobs and you're terrified of them as a kid and then when you see someone forget their passport or lose their passport, those are the most horrific traumatic experiences I've ever experienced. Uh, you know, wa- watching kids just break down, crying and peeing their pants, being so destroyed, having to turn back. So those those are big, big things that I think live, leave a big imprint on you. And then, as again, as a, as a kid growing up on that side, instant mistrust of the police, because of all the the stuff that you hear from your parents and all the Mm. things that you're witnessing on the Mexican side. And then on the U.S. side, you're also terrified because there's something wrong. You're going to get deported or they're going to kick you back or who knows what's going to happen. So I was terrified equally of the police on both sides.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I want to talk about music because I'm a musician. We briefly went into it, how how being at the border kind of amplifies your musical taste you know there's like always these pictures of elvis i heard and i know that you got into elvis for a while but as a kid also growing up in southern Southern california you said you got really into hip-hop and punk music and and you you met your wife sandra at a punk show in tijuana can you talk to us a little bit how how about your growing up at the border shaped your musical
2: experience absolutely i think the airwaves don't have visas and they don't (laughs) Need to uh, do the line, so we got to hear music from the U.S. You know, ninety-one X was pretty big in our in our time, and then we were listening to all the bands that would come through Iguanas. Again, as teenagers, you start falling in love with these bands, and you get these tastes. Uh, I remember going to Tower Records; it was like going to Mecca, and then looking at all these CDs and just going like, "Well, I can afford one CD." So you'd spend hours listening on those stations to see which one you were going to get. So it, it was. Music was, had no passport and had no visa and, and it really carried over. And I remember I discovered hip hop on the border because I bought a bootleg This is how big of an animation nerd I was. I bought a bootleg, Little Mermaid soundtrack, cause I wanted to hear the Little Mermaid soundtrack and the CD had an NWA album in there. So thankfully I got that one. Wow. I listened, to, yeah, I listened to NWA and I was like, this is incredible. What is this? uh And so I kind of, I kind of discovered hip hop thanks to the Little Mermaid. And 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 who for, would have thought? Who would yeah, right? And then after that, then I started, you know, asking around, and 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 basically, I got really into hip hop, and I got really into sort of this idea that this music is music, and it doesn't matter if I'm, you know, I'm not white, if I connect to the core and I connect to the goodness of certain because you got to remember that nwa album the first one it's really political mm. like it's all about you know the police and equality and like people forget that album is super political so then i got into public enemy and, and then i got into the wu-tang and i got into all the, these <laughs> 90s hip-hop bands also you know I, I lived through grunge era so all that stuff was happening but yeah music was was a huge part of it and then what was happening in latin america was In Mexico, you weren't allowed to have rock shows for many years because the government was scared that there would be a student revolt or or the youth would take over. So so rock and roll was outlawed, literally outlawed for years, for for many, many years. So once the 80s started happening, especially in the 90s, you started seeing bands who would go, hey, I love ska, but then I love merengue and I love folkloric music, but I love David Byrne and I love electronica and I love so you started seeing these these hybrids of bands that would embrace the traditional music and mix it with punk and rock and electronica, and and it became really exciting because they were singing in our own language, which was very rare, and they were talking about things that were happening to us, because it was always like, listen to the Sex Pistols, and I was like, well, we don't have a queen, but I get it, I totally get it, like F authority, uh, so, so here, about your president and your government and the things that were happening was hugely influential the band that me and sandra we we met at a uh the california fairs las ferias de la california they would bring bands from mexico city and from all over and i remember it was a concert for a band called la lupita from mexico city but the opening band was tijuana no which was the band that i love right because it was a local band uh you know ceci bastida and julieta venegas used to be in that band Uh, And I, we met at that concert and I immediately, I fell in love with her and I asked her to marry me two weeks from the day we met at the concert. And she said, no, right. She's very smart. So, but, (laughs) but music has always been a huge part of, I think the border for us. And you can acknowledge where you're from, but don't let that limit what you do. Cause you can grab things from everywhere else and make those your own. So I think that was a big lesson that music gave me. So when I started doing my artwork and when I started writing and when I started making movies, that's kind of what I do. I go, I like this Bollywood movie, so I'm gonna grab that idea from there and I like Japanese animations. So I'm gonna grab that from there. and I you know, I love uh, Diego Rivera murals, and then I love Esquivel music for sci-fi, and I start. Doing what we do in the border where you start mm. you know you grab your elvis and you grab your tupac and you grab your uh, los Tigres del norte and then you, st- you basically that's who we are right we are a, a sum of everything we love but we're also a product of all those things mixing
0: wow yeah that's so beautifully put that was just music to my ears it's so funny how many alignment points i have with you i i just spent like two weekends ago following ceci around tijuana to tell the story of Tijuana No. That's where I met this guy for Iguanas, because of Tijuana No's story. It's so funny that, does Ceci know this story that you met your wife there? I, I put that That
2: on, on an Instagram. Please tell her I'm a huge fan.
0: I'm gonna tell her, I'm gonna tell her.
2: I'm gonna see her when I go to LA soon. I'm gonna for sure
0: tell her. She's That's so funny. And Tower Records too. Tower Records was like ultimate church to me. When I was a little kid, like nine, I also moved here from Mexico City my parents would give me like whatever it was, 10, 20 bucks a month because all I wanted to buy was CDs. And I'm not proud of this as an adult, but at the time when I was younger, with what, 10 bucks I could I could afford like one CD a month and I wanted more because there was no Napster or Spotify. So I would switch the stickers because they had the use section. So I would switch the stickers so that I could get like two or three CDs.
2: Hey, you, the, for the good of the arts.
0: For the, for the, yes, yes. That's what I tell myself now. <laughs> It was like really old school pirating. Um, <laughs> anyways, when you started going to college at CalArts, did you have any sense, because you, you were not an American citizen at that point, right?
2: Oh, I mean, I just became an American citizen two years ago. That's how long it took me. Wow,
0: wow. Did you have any sense of feeling different or like an outsider walking around such a prestigious college campus?
2: You know what, it, what it, the, the good thing about a school like that is that it's very international. There were kids from all over the world and then I gravitated towards the the kids from Latin America, and it mm. was the first time I I had friends from Colombia and Brazil and Argentina, and that's when you started going, oh, we're, we're very similar, but we're completely different. And when they when they would use you know lat Latino back then to encapsulate a whole continent and the uh, Caribbean islands and put you all together in a group, and then you go, well, we all speak Spanish, but our cultures are completely hmm. different. That's like saying earthling, right? Like just because you're from Earth doesn't mean you have that much. So that was that was the first time I, I found myself going, oh, we are seen as a collective, even though we're completely individual in the way we were raised. And then, for example, for me, I started, I started really falling in love with Mexican American culture and falling in love with. With this idea that you could be both and that you could feel comfortable with both, and especially in Los Angeles, you know, I, we got to live in Texas for five years. Mexican Americans in Texas completely different. Uh, it's it, it, depending on I think what state you're in and what literally what city you're in. The culture just evolves and changes. And getting to go to Tijuana every two weeks, right? Because I would go visit Sandra every two weeks. I got to experience college in L.A. and in Mexico, and. It was incredible. It was incredible to, to especially when you're at that age, when you are feeding your soul with inspiration to have both of those things. It's a huge luxury. And I you know I feel super privileged that I got to do that. And my friends mm. thought it was crazy. They're like, why are you going to Tijuana every two weeks? This is nuts. And then they would go with me once and they would go, oh, that's what you're here, <laughs> you gotta come back.
0: Yeah, it's funny tijuana has that that electricity for every anyone who i'd say that word to they're like immediately excited and as soon as they go they're like it's one of my favorite things in life to bring people to tijuana and see the image they had of it and then the reality like shift before their eyes Yeah, it's, it's a magical thing
2: and and i think tijuana is tijuana is what you make of it mm. if you want it to be a, a place that inspires you you can but if you want it to be something that is not good to you then you go to those places that are not good to you. It, it, it's it's a living city.
0: I think that's never, I've never heard something more accurate. It is, it's like a blank canvas for your how you, like the consciousness you you project onto it. You can find whatever you want, whether it's from the darkest to yep. the lightest. Yep, absolutely. Um, it's it's a <laughs> It is, it's a mirror, that's crazy. I never thought about it that way, but yeah, it's true. When you were at CalArts, you made a 3D short that started getting awards and attention can you tell me about what the film that was and what you think people were responding to in that film?
2: So the the little short is called Carmelo, and it was made uh, in a computer. It's all computer animated, and it was folk art Mexican wooden dolls, uh, again, inspired by the, the folk art I would see in the border. Uh, and it was really sad. It was about a kid bullfighter who dies, and the whole short is, why would a kid die in a bullring? And so we basically told you the story of of this kid who wanted to be a bullfighter and it won the student Emmy. It literally changed my life. I got a uh, manager after that. But the, the, the thing that I, I look back on is that's the short that started book of life. When you look at book of life, it's about wooden folk art dolls and it deals with bullfighting. So that that's where the imp- inspiration came from. And I remember a teacher in school telling me you have to die in order to be born again and be an artist. You have to basically kill the non-artist in you to really embrace who you are. And that mm. to me was very Mexican, right? This idea that in order to live, you have to die. Mm. I was already obsessed with with the concept of death in Latin America and especially in Mexico and that, that relationship that we have with death that is so unique. I love this idea that having death all around you is a great reminder to live. Mm. The only thing that gives life value is death. Mm. So what better way than to have a constant reminder? I, you know, I love the saying that every Mexican has death in in their ear whispering, live. I love that.
0: I love that too. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It seems like it's a very recurring theme in your work because uh, it's very, at the end, like Christian Catholic, like the, the you must be born again. But there is like, there's such a, in Mexican culture, it, it's- I think it's a lot more inviting because it's almost like you can be born as something more joyful rather than like being this morose, morbid end thing. It's like, there's joy on the other side of this.
2: And the idea that as long as we talk about those who are not here, they're with us, right? So mm. like I talk about my grandfather all the time and I talk about, about them in a joyful way and what I found, especially early on as a kid talking to my American friends, they never talked about anybody who passed away. It was such a taboo thing, and they, they always sort of got sad thinking about it. And to me, it was always the opposite. It was, well, we should remember all the good stuff. Like, what was, what was their favorite food? What was their favorite song? And, you know, I would hear uh, something that reminded me of, you know, I had a friend who passed away when I was a kid, and I lo- he loved Transformers. So then I loved Transformers, and every time I played with Transformers, I would think of him. So it was a positive thing, but I think mm. that is instilled in you as a kid your, your relationship with death and your, the idea that as long as you remember them and as long as you talk about them, your loved ones are with you. Mm. And then if you never talk about them, then, then they really are dead.
0: Right. Yeah. That's, uh, that, that is such a, such a beautiful relationship to such an inevitable, but just natural part of life. Like you might as well make it, you might as well make it joyful if it's going to be there. Spoiler alert, we're all gonna die. Yeah, yeah. So you might as well bring some color into it. So so let's talk about the Book of Life a little bit, because you said the, apparently the, the inspiration for it started many years before the movie actually came to life. And I want to ask you about that. But is it is it really true that when to get to get a made you showed up at Guillermo del Toro's doorstep with a handful of sketches and a trunk full of tequila to, to pitch
2: him? Man, this the, every time I tell the story, I get to relive it and like again, like hair, white hair comes out and like <laughs> But he, he, you know, he's my hero. Guillermo del Toro, I think, I love Iñarito and I love Cuaron, uh, but Guillermo, especially because of the fantasy, he's he's always been my hero. Mm. Uh, and I I had made El Tigre and El Tigre had done pretty well. It won, you know, it won seven right. Emmys. So at that point, uh, when we started developing the Book of Life, they said, who would be your dream producer? And I was like, wow, oh, Guillermo del Toro would be my dream producer. Are you kidding me? So we tried to get him. He turned me down 15 times. Literally, this is meetings that we were set up where I would drive to the meeting and I would see him like getting his car and drive off. It was like a cartoon. And I remember all the producers going like, he just doesn't want to do this. We're wasting time. Uh, but I was like, no, I want to get a no, a no from his face. I want, I want that picture. So finally, uh, you know, now we're friends and he, he, he admits to me that he was fed up and he was like, bring him to my house. So I can say no to him, to his face. Yeah. We go to his house. Uh, I show up with, you know, we had my kids. We had all this art. Obviously, we had the tequila. And he had given me 30 minutes to pitch him the movie. He gave me a tour of his house, which is in the in the Kronos uh, extended edition uh, bonus features. You can see the crazy, beautiful house he has. It's like a museum. And he gives me a tour of the house. And I'm like peeing my pants. I'm so nervous. Finally, it's time for us to to go outside and pitch in the movie. And man, it was those moments where I, you know, I said, This is this is it, ancestors. <laughs> get in me and, and come through. And uh and just as I'm you know opening my mouth, at this point, yeah, you know, yeah me agarro confianza. Like he we're buddies, so he's like, Gordo, you have five minutes. <laughs> so I was like, What? I've been practicing the 30-minute pitch. All right, ancestors, give me the strength. <laughs> I take this giant breath, and then I kid you not, our people, our people betrayed me. <laughs> and the mansion next door, there was three leaf blower guys, and it was it was almost like they were waiting for me to open my mouth because as soon as I opened my mouth, they were like, we! And so, like a wave of sound, like. So I remember looking at Guillermo and like yelling at him, "Yeah, wait until they're done." And he goes, go to four minutes." <laughs> so I pitched him the worst version of the movie you can imagine in four minutes, and I almost fall in the pool. And one of our producers just he couldn't take it; he just left. He was like, "I've seen enough." The disastrous meaning I'm I'm drenched in sweat. We go back to his house, and I just apologize to him. I'm like, "Yeah, Mom, I'm so sorry. I wasted your time." Uh, you know, looking for him to give me some some hope. And he just destroyed me, he goes, I said, oh, you know, I'm sorry about the, the crappy pitch. And he goes, ah, that's the worst pitch I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> so I'm even more devastated. And then he goes, sit down. And he goes, I have two daughters. We would watch El Tigre on Saturday mornings. I know you, I know your sense of humor. I know your art, but most importantly, I know how much you love Mexico. And I love how you see it. So of course I'm gonna produce your movie. So then, you know, I stood up and I, I was drenched and I, and and he was drenched because it was so hot. And I'd like to believe that our liquids combined at that moment, (laughs) and I got some DNA from him. (laughs) And then he said, "If you didn't write the script, you're not a real director." And thankfully, I had written the script. So I ran to my car. The tequila bottle I had bought broke, and so the script was drenched in tequila. So I run back and I'm like blowing on it, (laughs) and I hand it to him, and he, you know, grabs it with his beautiful meaty hands. And he eyes it, and then he smelled it. And he goes, this is a good script. (laughs) 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 You signed that as a producer. What an incredible story. And, you know, Guillermo changed my life.
0: That's comedy, dude. That story, like everything happened, like a Charlie Chaplin movie. It's like, (laughs) wow. So why did he say no so many times if he, at the end of the day, he was like, I know you, like I know it. Just I like kind of, t- maybe it was like just to test your persistence or something.
2: I mean, I've asked him and he said, well, you know, I wasn't sure it was you and I get pitched a lot of crappy Day of the Dead movies. And so I, I just, I wasn't in the mood. Like, hmm. I mean, obviously he's Guillermo, so he gets pitched yeah, yeah projects from all over the world at all times. But now, you know, when, when your hero becomes your friend, it's always awkward, right? Like, he'll call me and like, I'll throw my kid away. I'm like, yes, Guillermo. <laughs> You want
0: <laughs> wow that's incredible for for people who don't know can you give like a quick pitch of what the book of life is and what it's about
2: a uh, book of life is a is a 90-minute animated feature very much a love letter to my version of of what Day of the dead is and what it means and it's about a kid who is from a family of bullfighters and he is naturally gifted to be a bullfighter but what he really wants to do is be a musician and play the guitar and so he literally has to die to make that come true and win the love of his life, and basically absolve his whole family of bullfighters uh, by apologizing to every bull they've ever killed with a song. So it all comes together, and then he gets to come back to Earth, right? It's Orpheus, and fight the bandits that are attacking his town, and then he he saves his his whole uh, his whole town. And it was mm-hmm. a huge metaphor for every artist kid that I've ever met who their town didn't believe in them or their family didn't believe in them and what they had to do and what they had to go through in order to to become that artist mm. yeah and
0: it's so beautifully told the animation is is wow i was really just like a little kid and in, in the when I, I remember seeing animated kids as a movie like i hadn't i hadn't felt that in a while where you're like this is so uniquely done like any i mean any animation can be realistic now with with technology but but the quality of the animation, I was, I was blown away. It was amazing.
2: And, and you know, I, I love Pinocchio, and I love folk art in Mexico. So I was like, I want to do my Pinocchio. I want to tell a story mm. of Mexican folk art dolls coming to life.
0: What was your favorite cameo? Because there's some really good ones. There's, like, Ice Cube. and
2: yeah, I got Ice Cube and uh, again, how, as a hip-hop fan.
0: That uh, must have been unbelievable, given your love for NWA.
2: Yeah, I, and, and by the way, when I pitched him the movie... He literally took his sunglasses and he was like, You know, I'm not Mexican. I'm like, Yeah, I I, I know, I know. And then I told him, No, but you you basically get to play God. And he put his sunglasses back on and he smiled and he was like, I'll do it. It Those iconic moments. But yeah, I mean, that cameo, I mean, I got to work with Danny Trejo and I got to, you know, I'm a big fan of of pretty much Cheech. Cheech has a a big influence on my comedy. So, kidding. Mm to put Gabriel Iglesias, uh, you know, Diego, I basically wrote it for Diego Luna. I love uh, Y tu Mamá También, that's one of my mm-hmm. favorite movies. So getting to work with, you know, Queda Castillo, I'm a big soap opera guy too, so it was pretty much everybody I asked said yes, <laughs> which wow. uh, doesn't happen very often. That's really amazing.
0: Y ahí estuvo la entrevista con Jorge. I have to say, this interview with Jorge was really special to me. After these last years of everything changing and moving all our interviews to Zoom, having to interact through technology and screens and without the immediacy and intimacy of a real life conversation, I was getting kind of burned out and unexcited by something that normally fills me with life. Talking to people, connecting with their hearts by hearing their most intimate stories, it's really like medicine to me, and after a while, this online thing just felt too distant and cold. Talking to Jorge, though, through the internet reminded me how hearing great stories told from the heart is transformative through any platform. This conversation reminded me why I love asking people questions and listening intently to absorb different experiences and hopefully learn how to be a better human. And to be inspired and remember that no matter what happens to us, committing yourself to the things you love and nourishing those things is what makes life full. Jorge's passion is contagious and it reminds me that it's possible to wake up and love what you do. Life is too short to not do that and this conversation refilled me with fuel to do what I love with gusto. You can keep the conversation going by following Jorge on Instagram or Twitter. He's at Mexopolis. And make sure you keep an eye open for Maya and the Three coming out this fall on Netflix. And just a quick note, we made some changes to our last episode, the bonus episode called Fido Goes South. We made a clarification and added more details about why vet care is so much less expensive in Mexico than it is in the U.S port of entry is hosted by me alan lilienthal this episode was produced by kinsey Morlin, with additional production and editing by emily jankowski lisa morissette is operations manager and john decker is the interim associate general manager of content this program is made possible in part by the corporation for public broadcasting a private corporation funded by the american people thank you for listening